mean, how else would I start this other than not knowing the date and time? It is uh, roughly 3 p.m. East Coast time on the 14th of July, 2022. I hope you're doing well. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is my live chat, episode 124, right here. Uh, on the docket today, I think I saw some questions about Nate Diaz and some Makachev Oliveira and some stuff in between and every other place around that. So thank you for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. We'll go for about an hour today. Uh, and if you have any donations, I'll get to those questions associated with them at the end of the roughly the hour or so. Um, I hope you're doing well. I have a little bit of a story for you I'm going to share here in just a minute, but other than that, I appreciate everyone joining me. I am glad you're here. I'm glad to do this. I'm feeling good for the most part, feeling motivated for the most part. So let's get this party started, shall we? And we're back. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, as I mentioned before. Um, yeah, here we are. Uh, Let's see, a couple of housekeeping notes as I mentioned about the hour and everything else like that. I will tell you that last week I was like, hey, everyone just sort of be careful with the old Rona. Uh, I feel fine, by the way. I felt fine after a couple of days. I mean, I still have a lingering cough and, you know, some other small symptoms, but I'm basically fine. I had just one day really where I was tired and everything else was pretty uh, quick. However, my daughter had a rough run of it, a very rough run of it. Now, I do not in any way present what had happened to her as some kind of uh, statistically common thing. I don't know how common it was, but um, she got it for me, of course, because even through our best efforts to keep me quarantined in various parts of the house, it did not work. She got it. And uh, she had uh, like a fever on Friday, but then it went away. And so it was no big deal. And she felt fine in the afternoon and had no other real symptoms. And then Saturday was a complete disaster, a disaster. Um, basically, what had happened was, you know, she had a fever the entire day. We were giving, you know, administering over-the-counter medicine to mitigate it. There were at times we got it down to 99, maybe 100. But then right around in the afternoon, I would say around 4 or 5, things took a turn. And really, especially at 6, and the temperature went above 102, 103, right at 104, which is bad very bad and she was wheezing like real difficulty breathing you know um so my wife and I made the executive decision to then take her to the ER because even with the administration of over-the-counter medicines to mitigate fever it wasn't really working so we go there and it turned out what had happened was she had from the rona she had an upper respiratory infection which caused inflammation which caused her track to swell which means she couldn't breathe which then meant on top of it all kinds of like you know phlegm and mucus and everything else got stuck in there and uh so she couldn't breathe hardly she was it was it was scary to put it mildly scary and what what they were able to do was take it all out and then gave her i don't know what the name of it was some kind of steroid medication to treat the upper respiratory tract infection because i guess what had happened was the fever was a function of the fact that all of that was exacerbating the other symptoms. But, you know, she showed up there. They took her temperature. It was 103.7. You know, that was after medication had been given to her. It was bad. It was bad. Um, now, since then, it has been significantly better. Um, she's 
turn the volume up otherwise. All right, let me turn the volume up just a little bit. There we go. Just like that. Maybe a little bit. Um, since then, it has been smooth sailing. Uh, still lingering symptoms here or there. But, um, but you know, not Saturday was just a day of misery. A, a day of pure, pure misery. And, you know, I don't know what would have happened had we not taken her to the ER. I, I suspect she would have pushed through. And, you know, I think most of us, or many of us anyway, grew up in an era where I, I, I think I went to the ER as a kid like twice, maybe three times before I turned 18. Like, I never saw the inside of one of those things, except for rare circumstances. Um, but we had to do it, man. We had to do it. We had to go. And so I, all of this is to say, you know, everyone's got their own mind about treatment and everything and what it all means. And again, I have, I am pretty confident in saying that I think her symptoms were not necessarily all that common relative to what children typically experience, but it was, it was real sketchy for us on that Saturday. So I am happy to say that she feels much better now. She's like a normal kid. Everything's good to go. Sort of lingering cough and stuff like that. But you know, very, 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 very mild and all's well that ends well. But you know, I'll just say this because you all know my opinion like oh Luke you're going to get her vaxxed like yes obviously of course uh, we can't do it for three months but you know when she is eligible yes of course we will but I realize everyone's got their own minds made up on this just if you have a kid or anyone else out there for whatever reason you know I heard the stories too like oh kids just run through it like the cold and I'm sure the vast majority of them do not all of them do not all of them do uh, and you know, if your kid is, if you have someone who is vulnerable, who is experiencing symptoms, you take that shit seriously. Take it seriously for any illness, obviously, whether it's Rona or anything else. But I was surprised at how bad it got. Even, even, and y'all know me, like I, you know, I have a probably a little bit more of a, uh, take the danger of it seriously more than most folks. But even I thought, yeah, she'll be fine. You know, she'll get through it. No, dude, it got, it got hairy. It got hairy. So take it seriously if, if someone young or whatever, old, whatever, gets a little sick. Yeah, take, take good care of them, okay? All right. And, you know, my daughter appreciates all the well wishes of support that some folks have sent. Okay, with that little preamble out of the way, let's begin with the actual questions here for the chat itself. First one, hey Luke, I'm absolutely intrigued with a potential Makachev versus Oliveira matchup. What would be your prediction, and how do you think that fight plays out? I've done a lot of thinking about this. Um, like you, I have a lot of questions, too. The one thing I keep coming back to on this is if I am Makachev, how do I avoid a lot of that forward pressure that Oliveira brings? Right? How do I, how do I find ways around that? What do I have to do? And the reality is you can't quite face Oliveira. This is kind of crazy, but you can't quite face Oliveira head on. Now, of course, in any scenario where you're dealing with someone good, if you can fight them at angles, then that's always going to be optimal. But I really mean that. What I tend to think is, like, how would you get around the submission threat of Market, or of uh, Oliveira? Well, one of them could be you could just go right into his guard and do what Paul Felder did and just hammer him right through it. Dangerous, but you can do it. Felder did it, right? It's, it can be done, at least that version of him. You may say, well, this version's different. Fair enough. But we at least have seen that. That's one way. But I tend to think that Makachev won't do that. What I think that they might try is to capture contact and maintain contact at an angle. Right? 
go for a single, not even try and run the pipe, head on the inside to avoid the guillotine, and then go right to a body lock from a sideways position, right? So if they're facing this way, you don't face them head on, you face them at an angle, right? And you maintain that, you maintain that along the fence line, you try and throw them by, make them wrestle to his hands, so as to avoid that. Now, obviously, Oliveira will probably be expecting this. He can Granby roll or he can invert through. Like, there's a lot of ways to get around it. But one of the things I think I would be paying attention to is to what extent can they capture and maintain contact at angles. I think that would be very, very essential. Because if you're not directly facing his guard, his guard has no value. It doesn't exist, right, in terms of any kind of submission threat. He can capture guard and that, that, that changes it. And there's, of course, ways to stuff it and whatever. There's a whole battle there. But when I think about what kind of contact that those Russian guys are good at, especially on the fence line and through maintaining it, it's getting you to wrestle to your hands, and it's getting to from different positions from forcing movement on the single leg and then using that to capture contact at angles. I think that's what I'm looking for from Makachev, and really I think it will play out to that because if you try to just face him head on from that clinch, again, like you might be able to get the takedown, but then you're facing him direct on into the guard. You might be able to do all kinds of things, but as long as you have to deal with him right in front of you like this, either from him working from a guard position or a standing position, the pressure into you, the contact through the clinch, and then the use of the guard itself, these are all the very dangerous places. From a side position where you're inside on a body lock and you have you have an angle on his hips, from a position on the fence where you can throw him, to your, throw him by, throw him to the hands, capture the wrist, capture from sort of a turtle ride, that's when the game begins to change a little bit. The question is how long you could maintain that from a guy like Oliveira who knows how to resist. So it, it remains to be seen exactly what Islam wants to do. But, you know, you look at a lot of the guys that have kind of succumbed to Oliveira in more recent iterations. It's a lot of either resistance through retreat, right? I'm going to back up and kind of stay safe, but it's not really out angling. Um, or it's just trying to meet him head on in the middle and then he they all get kind of run over. What about capturing contact and maintaining contact at an angle? I think that's the kind of thing that Makachev has shown a propensity to do. It seems doable, at least on some level, and is a phenomenal way to drain Oliveira and stay out of the way of the more dangerous weapons that he has. Now, you have to then put on ground and pound. You have to make him wrestle. You have to do kinds of things in that space that make him less than what he ordinarily would be. But that's, I think, really the a big challenge. Just facing Oliveira head-on, I don't know, man. That's not a really winning strategy to me. Not, not right now. But the other ones, especially with a guy like Makachev, who's already shown an ability to do that, wrestle to the hands, wrestle to the back, mat returns, working from turtle, wrist captures, that does appear doable. Uh, running in off a single, head inside, forcing him to off-balance, forcing him to move, put him against the fence line, switching right to a body lock, all those body lock attacks those guys have through Uchimadas, all kinds of other stuff. I think that's going to be what Makachev is looking for, and Oliveira's job is to probably resist that, recapture some kind of alignment, and work from there. Um more than anything else, that's the battle I want to see play out. I mean, I guess Makachev could jab him at range and shit like that, but I tend to think that really won't be it. I tend to think what will really do the job is is angles. Angles. Uh, Luke, what is one thing that would turn you off so bad from MMA that you would consider a career change? <laughs> For example, if the UFC signed Hasbulla to fight Cejudo or fighter pay gets worse. 
What would turn me off completely in a career change? Um, the problem with the career change argument is I'm so deep into this industry. I don't really, I don't know exactly what I would even do uh, outside of it. I mean, I'm sure I could figure out something. Everyone seems to do that when they have to, but it would take a lot. Um, I mean, you know, it's the funny part about it is like, there's a lot about MMA. I, I've told you guys this before, and if you follow my work, this does not in any way sound surprising to you. I don't nas na, na, like I, I don't fit into MMA all that well culturally. You know, um, there's all kinds of things that I find off-putting or not for me. And you know, listen, you always have to like look in the mirror and be like, does it matter that you don't like these things? Does it matter that you don't fit in? Well, it depends. You know, it depends on what you want. But in terms of like how the industry functions, it doesn't matter what I think. In terms of how the industry functions, it doesn't matter that there's certain things I don't like, and I recognize that and I accept it. Like I, I get that. You know. Uh, there are some things that, you know, I do think is worth speaking out about, which is about fighter pay, but you know, there's a lot of things I just, I'm like, well, th th I think it's just going to be what it's going to be. But what would force a career change? Jesus, it would have to be something really, really, really bad, really bad. Um, I, I don't know if even a death would do it, which is bad, but you know, cause there's all kinds of ways a death could happen that wouldn't be, um, that would be kind of expected, right? Regional MMA, something goes wrong, even in UFC, you know, obviously, God forbid, but something always can happen that way. Even that wouldn't put me off. Um, it's a great question. It, it would be, it would have to be a lot. It would have to be a lot, candidly. I'm kind of pot committed at this point. I really don't know what else I'm going to do with my life, at least for the foreseeable future. So here I am. Would there be any longevity in an Alex Pereira title run? The division seems to have many difficult matchups for him. Brunson, Vittori, Whitaker, and maybe Hermanson. Yeah, I, even if he beats Izzy, which is a big if, I don't think he's long for a title. I mean, just straight up, if he was fighting in his next fight, Robert Whitaker, who would you pick? Now, maybe some of you might pick Pereira. And by the way, to be clear, Pereira can beat anybody if he has the right kind of performance. I think that's that's pretty fair as well. But I would pick Whitaker. <laughs> I'd pick Whitaker ten times out of ten to beat him, straight up. I would. I would. I. I you know, you'd, you'd have to think about it a little bit. You'd have to recognize the risks, and wouldn't be easy necessarily. But I'm picking Whitaker ten times out of ten over Pereira at this point, and I think a lot of folks would probably do that too. And so when you think about that, you're like, huh? How many guys? could beat him now Brunson obviously uh with the wrestling could be a problem but you know how much success would he have hard to say Vittori is another guy dude Vittori isn't even in his prime yet I don't think uh big strong middleweight like could he give Pereira problems Pereira however you pronounce it properly yes of course he could Hermanson seems like a little bit of a difficult different different one I wonder how he would yes obviously on the ground he's much better than uh Pereira but uh, I, I wonder how much he could be deterred by the threat of the striking, the threat of what Pereira represents on the feet. But like Whitaker and Vittori, I, 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 it's harder to say with Vittori if he'd win at this point right now. But at some point, do I? Is it, it is it conceivable that Vittori would win? Yes. Would I pick Whitaker right now to win? Not a shadow of a doubt in my mind. Not a shadow of a doubt in my mind. I think Whitaker would beat him. 
So when you really begin to think about that, this is why they advanced the title picture the way that they have. It's like, one, he's older, fair enough. Two, there's history with the existing champion, fair enough. You could add a little sub-note there that there is some consternation in the fan base about the kind of performances the champion is turning in, especially since Pedro is turning in, for the most part, nothing but dynamic performances. Uh, and, you know, he needs a fresh challenge. Like, There's all kinds of reasons why he got fast-tracked the way he did. Another one might be... Yo, you actually make him work through the top of that division, and there's a very good chance he doesn't make it to Izzy. A very good chance. And the UFC has tried this in the past in other divisions and other cases, and, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, right, didn't necessarily work out that way. So I actually, like, don't have a problem with the way that they did this. He beat Sean Strickland fair and square. Sean didn't, you know, in my judgment, have the very best game plan. I think he didn't have an optimal one for winning, and that cost him pretty big time. But it's a very good fighter he beat. It's All the guys he's beaten have been pretty good, obviously. And and, um, and so for that reason, I think they made the right call. You know, strike while the iron is hot. There's a lot of good reasons to do it. It's a competitive main event, and styles make fights. But, yo, if he had to go through Whitaker, I don't think he makes it. Whitaker is... <laughs> Whitaker's the real deal Holyfield, folks. Like, he is, he is uber uber talented athletic skilled phenomenal timing well-rounded battle-tested veteran dude Whitaker is a force I don't think a guy who has as many um whose whose game is as uneven as Pereira's is would get past a guy like that right now I mean obviously he could given the striking but you know if they fought 10 times kind of an idea how, how many would Whitaker win I'd, I'd pick 10 I'd pick Whitaker and to win the vast, vast, vast majority of them? That's a weird question. Uh, as someone born with some kind of musical condition that basically just the ability to not derive pleasure from music, I always like asking people, how do you describe the way music brings pleasure to you? I don't know, man. It stirs something inside of you, right? Isn't that the idea? My kid just woke up. You might hear that. Um, this would be a better question for someone who has studied this in any kind of serious or more or given more thought to it but truly it's the the emotions that it stirs it's the feelings that you get it's the memories that it recalls it's the it's the very it's the very unique way that it speaks to what is inside of you uh, and when of course in the case that it's good it 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 elevates, um, it elevates the experience. It, Jesus, phone's blowing up. It always does this whenever I go in the fucking chat. Like some, I, I get hit up with a million texts. Um, like I'm trying to think of the like favorite music that I listen to. It makes you feel certainly. Sometimes you can live vicariously through the music, and it makes you feel empowered. It, it, you, there can be a turn of the phrase if you're listening to hip hop that sounds so clever and it, it's almost funny and interesting and clever and brilliant and sometimes there can be storytelling in, in some of these songs and the storytelling is vivid and your mind can follow and it takes you down a path or you can hear something like you know um, something more classical and it you know it can have it can have this these sort of feelings of grandiosity and awe and it just it, it it puts you through a range of of 
pleasant, sometimes difficult, sometimes hard to deal with, but often interesting, unique human emotions, memories, experiences, speaking to your personality, and it all sort of combines in this greater perspective uh, and then this greater moment to bring you joy. Yeah. Luke, I was thinking about Max Holloway's career recently and how, in an ironic way, it has mirrored Jose Aldo's. Both were phenoms who accomplished so much while very young, and while they were dethroned, it felt like a veteran passing the torch. However, Max, like Jose, when he peaked, is only 30 years old, technically a young fighter. Would you agree on that comparison, and do you think Max has another run in him? Well, Max is in a bit of a more precarious position, actually, I would say. Um... I agree that they were, you know, they had a lot of success while young and then dethroned, uh, but with a sort of passing of the torch moment, fair enough, yes. But, you know, Max's 30 to me is a little bit deceptive. Like, if you're asking me, do I think that Max can continue to beat very good elite fighters? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. But I think Max has a really interesting question he has to ask himself, which is what do you really want and what is doable given the cost of what you want, right? What do you want? What's the cost of getting there, and are you willing to pay it? He's 30, but he's been fighting in the UFC for 10 years. Boy, let me tell you something. 10 years of fighting at this level is going to put some tread on the tires. And, you know, I realize that he has much better safety measures put in place now, and I respect that completely. But I do think he has taken a lot of damage, and we only know a fraction of what it's done to him cognitively. We haven't really turn that corner to see what life's going to show him a little bit later on, right? Because once the symptoms start setting in, it's too late. By the way, I might have to close my window here. Hang on. Hang on. There we go. I think my neighbor's going to mow his lawn. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, so while I think he can beat good 145ers, and I think he can beat good 155ers, obviously the door at 145 is closed as long as Alex is there. Right? So that's one problem. The other problem is that at 155, I think he can beat good guys, but I, he got a little bit basically outgunned against Poirier. Now, he was competitive against Poirier. That was a phenomenal fight, but he got outgunned. And Poirier is not the top of 155 anymore. Now, he is obviously very close to the top, and it is at least conceivable he could get the belt. But it's not like... Oliveira is the best guy, and Islam might be number two. Poirier is probably, at what, at best, I guess, ranked number two or could be number three, depending on how you want to do the rankings. But, um, and I don't think, you know, the, he, who could Max Holloway beat to reasonably get a title shot? And even if he got one, would you expect him to, to win at 155? I have doubts about that. I have doubts about that. I think he can beat very good 155ers, but do look at these guys that are coming up, the Gamrats, Kudateladzis, the physiques and everything else. Like, dude, these guys are going to be hard to fucking beat, man. They can thump. They have very good physicality. They can do a lot. Max can probably beat many of them, maybe all of them right now. But I think long-term, getting a title at 155 to me seems unlikely. And even if doable, a brutal slog to get up there. And at 145, obviously, like I just mentioned, with, with Alex there, that door is closed. And so you have to ask yourself... What do you really want? And if the answer is to just, you know, be in big, fun, relevant fights and fight good guys, you could keep doing that. If the if the goal is to get the title, certainly I cannot declare to you that Max can't get it, but I am skeptical that he can get it. 
And so you have this point where it's like these fights are brutal as shit. I, I don't know if you can even get to the title point at 155 at all. I mean, it's possible, but I don't know how likely that is. And even if you did it, you're going to have to... I mean, the amount of blood and treasure you're going to have to give to do it is going to be extraordinary. And you do need to make sure that there's a quality of life that you have when this is over. I mean, dude, if he has four more years, that's going to be 14 years of UFC fighting. And not just any old UFC fighting. Some guys could probably do long runs and maybe not have as much damage. Like a Jim Miller, I don't think has taken as much, which is why you have seen him be as competitive as he has been. Dude, Max has been in some fucking dog fights. Some dog fights. What I tend to think is possible and probably even likely is that he continues on for a little while. I think he beats some good guys. But I think at some point it's going to dawn on him that getting to a belt at 155 or even 145 um, is not really attainable. And, you know, you have to kind of do the Rich Franklin thing at that point where you're just, you know, you're fighting really good guys and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And you do that for as long as your body and your, and your family lets you. I, th I tend to think that's probably it. And you're like, oh, but that's crazy. He's 30. He was just champion, blah, blah, blah. Like, dude, the game moves like that. This game moves fast. This is why this whole thing, like, oh, John Jones is going to take off three years and be the same. He might. He might. I mean, and if anybody can break the rules, it's him. Fair enough. I acknowledge. I acknowledge. But I'm skeptical. I'm real skeptical. And you're like, oh, well, GSP took four years off. Yeah, but GSP had a lead on the game and took a very particular matchup, and then that was it, and called it a day, right? I mean, we're talking about the outlier of outliers, which Jones might be too. I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm at least at a bare minimum curious to see how that looks. Now, if anybody can do it, like I mentioned, it's John, and he's changing divisions and stuff, but like, I'm not saying that Max can't do anything impactful in the game anymore, but I think that the most impactful things that he has done to this point will remain so. Like, I don't think there's any new... Um, even greater heights or even similar heights really attainable uh, given the given the way that the, the the divisions are changing, given what he's experienced and given what he's up against. And that's crazy because Max Holloway is about as high quality a fighter as they come, truly. But dude, the game will pass you by in the blink of an eye. It will do it. It will do it. And let's see what happens, but it's a tough road. It's a tough road. Look, you said in an episode that you didn't like the Northmen. I didn't, but let me clarify that in a minute. But let me finish your question. I was curious as someone who is also into cinema if you have seen any of Robert Eggers' other movies. I feel like Eggers is a great young filmmaker, but that the Northmen isn't the best introduction to his work. I would highly recommend The Witch and The Lighthouse as they are both very well made and interesting to watch with a lot of subtext and attention to detail. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Listen. The Northman is is very well made. Like, obviously, if you guys haven't seen it, I think you can see it on Amazon Prime. You can probably rent it on like a bunch of different places. But uh, it's, it's a very well-made movie. Like, the casting was good. The brutality is, you know, appropriate, is what I would say. Uh, all kinds of great actors and actresses in it. And Nicole Kidman's character is sinister as, as, the, as it comes. Um there's a lot to like the cinematography is beautiful the direction is great the lighting is incredible sound design i mean it's a super well made movie i guess i just thought that this like and you know talking about you're talking about a guy who loves war movies and covers fight fights for a living i just thought that there was a little bit of an over the top um 
valorization of gratuitous violence and valorization like oh i'm gonna die in battle in this glorious kind of way it isn't how they used that you isn't that how they used to live i don't know how historically accurate it was but it felt to me like it was ratcheted up to the highest degree possible to overly dramatize and valorize and you know almost put a certain level of vanity on the beauty of brutal warfare and dying and to be clear there is obviously heroics in war and every society has their own creed and every person has their own choice to make but i find that a little bit just so unpalatable to the point of boring candidly it's not for me i'm I'm happy to watch like the violence is not so much the issue although there's plenty of it in this movie but it's really not that it was just this like these undertones of the glory of dying in battle and like what kind of um how do i say this what kind of character traits are brought to bear in characters to make that happen is off-putting for me. It's to, it's phony. It's like it's like watching a really beautifully drawn comic book that's gory brought to life. It's 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 it speaks to I think a different kind of person. So again, it was well directed. It was beautifully shot. Like the last scene, I won't spoil it for you. The last scene is incredible. Um, and it's the, the story has all these different chapters. Like, it's a well-made movie. It's a very well-made movie. But that, that kind of over-valorization of that sort of thing is, is, is phony to the point of unpalatable. And I think, it, I think the folks who like that kind of stuff... Um, I, I mean, listen, everybody's journey is different, but... For me, for me, for me. When you actually see like what happens to people in battle, you know, like I, 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 again, I've talked about this and you guys have watched this chat. You've heard me say this a million times, like going to Walter Reed. I went to the old Walter Reed. I went to the new Walter Reed. I've been a gazillion times. When you actually see what it does to people, it doesn't, I don't, I don't have the same romantic sense of, the glory of battle that a lot of other folks have. It doesn't do that for me anymore. Luke, in your discussions with MMA trainers, how do they approach strength training in ways that are useful for MMA? Not negatively impacting range of motion and avoiding taxing valuable cardio. Are there agreed upon best practices or do trainers still differ a lot? Does it vary much from fighter to fighter or depend on body type? My under- I, I don't really have a keen sense of what all the various trainers are doing. There's so many of them in there, and there are, there are some that used to fight that are very good, like Phil DeRue, he's very good. Um, but I couldn't tell you what the vast majority are doing and how valuable it is. I also think that there's just a lot of snake oil in training anyway, whether it's for MMA or any other type. And when I say snake oil, I don't mean like the actual practical application of like, hey, how do you take that down someone along the fence line? I mean... You know, when they're doing these like these drills for hitting lights for hand-eye coordination, it's not really clear how much value that actually confers and how valuable that is. And people will do a bunch of shit like that. So what I would say is that the very best trainers from what I have seen have a real clear sense on, like I, Matt Wenning always says something that to me stands out, which is you can only train that which you can recover from, right? You can, Long-term, you can only train what you can recover from. And if you can't recover from it, then you can't, you can have one hard day. Yeah, then you're fucked for two days after that, three days maybe. 
So that's no good. So the ones I've seen, it's not just a focus on recovery. It's the kind of training intensity that actually makes recovery possible. It focuses a lot on the very specific kinds of cardiovascular systems you might need for fighting, where high intensity, low intensity, all different kinds of staggered needs in that way. Um, rotational power, explosion, balance, a lot of it training to make ligaments stronger, make muscles stronger, range of motion better, um, balance, like as I mentioned before, all different kinds of ways. Those are the, the, from what I have seen, the very best ones seem to understand the very specific sporting needs. They train according to those needs in a, in a specific program designed for each athlete. I'm told, by the way, that there are like some of the criticisms I've heard of the, the Performance Institute have been that their training methods can be a little bit cookie cutter. Like the precepts that underlie them are all good, but there's not enough specificity athlete to athlete. Now, again, these are some of the complaints I've heard. How true this is, you'd have to talk to someone at the PI or, you know, I don't mean to besmirch them. I'm merely, merely repeating some. I've heard it a few different times now from a few different sort of walks inside of MMA. Now, again, not bad training, just a little, a little uh, one note but it would be something along the lines of understanding the very needs about what kind of fighter you have, what kind of athlete you have, what are their deficiencies, what can they recover from, what is valuable in a specific camp for any individual athlete, uh, how the camps connect to one another. So you can have this, you know, in the camp we worked on this one and over the course of four or five, six, seven, eight camps, what we've been building, having all those metrics measured, right? All those various things, the very best ones seem to do all of that and then some. Um, how they do that, there does appear to be a lot of difference in in method, whether it's, you know, who uses a sled and who uses this machine and who uses these, you know, uh, uh, VO2 max measurements and whatever. Yeah, there can be some differences there. But um, in general, the very best trainers seem to understand athlete, fighter, camp need, long-term camp progress, recovery, uh, training volume and specificity according to recovery needs, Injury prevention, imbalances, that kind of thing, and all working in that cohesive whole. Those those seem to be the better ones. Thoughts on Bilal versus Brady and Sanhagen versus Yudong fights? Who would you favor in both those cases? Boy, I can I I saw some people shitting on the Bilal Brady fight. I cannot believe that. I don't know exactly how exciting that will be. So if the argument is, oh, I'm not super high on Bilal versus Brady because I can't tell how exciting it will be. Okay, fair. I don't know how exciting it will be either. But that it will be hugely revealing, I do think is true. Uh, and by the way, it could also be exciting too. Like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, to me, it's like the, the argument about exciting, it's like, I, I, it's an entertainment product. So it's not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. In fact, it's hugely relevant. For me, it's not that relevant. For me, and again, I'm speaking very clearly about what my needs are and what my expectations are, I care much more about best practices, what they say about the fight game, what they say about a fighter, what works, what doesn't. The science of fighting, to me, is as important, if not more, than the entertainment quotient. You, you could be in a very different space, and I understand that. That's partly why I like my arguments about Izzy, it's like, I'm not going to tell you that his fight with Cannoneer was super fun. It was not super fun. Um, or that there's not criticisms to make of him. Yes, there are. Very much so. But I don't get as down about the entertainment quotient as others because it's just not as relevant a factor for me as it might be for other folks. With Bilal and Brady, I keep going back to what Michael Chiesa said to me and what we've seen from Brady's career, which is 
that dude is fucking strong. When he came into our studios, dude, he has a back like a turtle shell. I couldn't believe how strong he he just looked. And then for Kiesa to be like, I, if you've not seen what Kiesa says about him, go watch that interview. Like even Kiesa was like, fuck, dude. It was like wrestling a gorilla. You know, it was like wrestling a gorilla. What was I supposed to do with that, you know? And the thing about Brady that stands out, I mean, Brady and Hamzat and Rachmanov, those are the, the, you know, and maybe Bilal too, the four horsemen of the welterweight apocalypse, but those three young guys out there, Brady has a submission component as well. Now, you didn't see it so much in the Kiesa fight because Kiesa obviously is, you know, good at avoiding that kind of stuff for the most part, but I wonder how relevant that will be because Bilal, I I have slept on Bilal Muhammad. I have been so wrong about him a, a few times, and he is a proven force at 170 pounds. So I really take my hat off to him for what he has accomplished and I and I acknowledge it very much. Also, he has the best walk-in intro music, I think, in all of MMA, personally speaking. But I do wonder, like if you're asking me who's the better wrestler and the stronger of the two, I'm going to say Brady. Who's more battle-tested? Bilal. Um, who knows how to win rounds? in spaces where he has to like really kind of make it happen below at least shown the capacity for that. I lean towards Brady. I think Brady is going to be the guy who proves to be the more dominant grappler. I also think he's got a lot more of the striking game built in. Didn't see that in the Kiesa fight so much, but I think you will going forward. I've been high on Brady and I'm going to stay high on Brady, but I recognize that, you know, my, my radar about Bilal has been off. I, I acknowledge it. I accept that I've been wrong. And so I'm very curious to see how this one plays out. In the case of Sanhagen versus Yudong, this is a tremendous fight because Sanhagen's movement, quick, in and out, stance switching, that, that trickery, that cleverness, can, take, can be, I think, overwhelming for Song Yudong. On the other hand, uh, you know, he's got fight and round-altering power. Now, Sanhagen's got a good chin and has shown insane durability. Perhaps taking too much punishment, actually. And that's actually one of the knocks on Sanhagen has been... <coughs> excuse me. He's very good. But he can... he can, And he's dealing, but he'll just accept too much punishment. In fact, let me look at his numbers here. I'm going to bet that his strikes absorb per minute are above four. Which would be a little on the high side. Let's see. So what does fight metric have to say? Fight metric says, how what are his strikes absorbed per minute? Yep, 4.55. High, high. You can't take that kind of damage from Song Yudong. It's something he's needed to clean up in his game generally, and I think something he's going to need to be aware of in this fight. I don't have any doubt that the stance switching, in and out movement, level changing, all that stuff that Corey Sanhagen does is, is something Song Yudong by itself can't match. I don't think he can match that. But I think he's got huge power. He's got great reads. He's got great athleticism. Super young, which means camp over camp over camp, you're going to begin to see massive changes in what he's been able to do. For me, this is a fight Sanhagen should win. I expect him, in fact, to win. On the other hand, if he hasn't tightened up some of the things that have cost him in previous fights... He won't. He won't. It really comes down to that for me. Uh, as good as Song Yudong is, and as much improvement as he's making, I don't think he can match the movement and angles of, of, of Sanhagen. But there's a lot of other ways he can affect that fight. And um, I need 
for or I, I don't need to say anything, but for San Hagen to win, I think some of that has to be cleaned up. So this is a, I mean, that that fight to me is, I mean, both of those fights are phenomenal, but the San Hagen and Yudong one, really a perfect opponent for the other guy to prove exactly what they need to. Because you can be like, oh well, you know, San Hagen beat Marlon Moraes and Lineker and Asuncao and Edgar. It's like, right? But Song Yudong represents something a little bit different than what those guys represented at this point, anyway. Um, and while he has beaten good opposition and, you know, given tough fights, I thought he beat Dillashaw personally. I recognize that, you know, that wasn't the way the judges saw it, but um, obviously it's the Sterling and the Jan fight, not so much, but you get the idea. Like, he's given tough fights to good fighters. This is one where if you're not careful, not that I think he's going to get his lights put out, but that you could give away a, a much more winnable fight by virtue of cleaning up some of the defensive liabilities. Dude, Sanhagen's offense is great. It's really, really, really good. Really good. It's championship level in my in my view, like his offense. It's the other parts of the game, some of the choices defensively in the grappling department, the willingness to get hit even though he's got a great chin. Those are things that, that, are, that cost him. And I don't think you can play those games against Song Yudong and expect to win. Uh, Jesus, this is a long-ass question. Uh, a lot of the guys out of Dagestan have a very advanced kicking game. Guys like Umar and Usman Nurmagomedov. Strategy seems to be keeping them at a safe, controllable range on the feet while remaining a threat to their opponent. Uh, da -da 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 -da. I wonder if the added dexterity they achieve from training to kick could improve their takedowns and overall grappling. Especially with the way they throw, especially with the throws and inside trips. Saeed Nurmagomedov had a ridiculous inside trip takedown the third. That really caught my attention. There seemed to be a unique level of dexterity in his lower half. I'm curious if you think there's something to his hip and leg dexterity developed from kicking, potentially improving other parts of their game. Yeah, sure. Like a lot of the balance you might need. And when you do like an inside trip off the body lock in particular, right, you have to you have to weave in the leg and then you have to your hips have to be one way you have to turn your hips and fall like you need the mobility that that confers to really kind of sell that the whole way through and you're right they do seem to have a little bit of their game benefited athletically by their strength and ability to find space through range of motion like how much where, where, where they can land through range of motion and where they have strength through range of motion they seem to have a lot of that right like the, you guys know what a cossack squat is like if you're standing like an a-frame and then you lean to one side all the way down they can cossack squat not by going back up but by just staying low and going side to side like that i've seen them do it you know so they've got they've got good balance they've got again good range of motion and they've got strength all the way through that uh, along the way I don't know what their training methods are that speak to that um, it's a great question it's a I'd have to talk to some other folks about it. that's a really great question it's a long one but you're right there there might actually be certainly something to that it's not just dexterity though it's strength through range because you can get guys who are limber but actually I ha I actually spoke to someone who was a medical trainer and um and he was telling me that you can get guys who like do a lot of yoga and they can do so much flexibility training that it actually kind of hurts them a little bit. Not pain, it doesn't cause them pain, but what I mean, I heard it in the more general sense that they actually lose that kind of tension that they need to get the explosivity on the other side, right? So they'll get, they'll get all of the flexibility gains, but then they kind of cut into 
the burst of strength that they need on the other side by virtue of how limber it all is. And they can get into different spots through the range of motion, but they don't have strength all the way through it. The cat, the the unifying theme that these guys have, that, according to what you're sort of asking here, is they've got range, right? Remember, look, think about Armin Saryukin, like when they you had Gamrot trying to treetop him, and he had that sick balance. Like that's not just being flexible; that's having all the different kinds of muscles working there together to maintain the ability to hop on one foot. It's both. It's both. It's both that you can be flexible and that ability to maintain muscular tension all the way through for whatever needs you have. I think that's a real big difference. But how they get that or to what extent they prioritize that in training, I'm not so sure. Do you think choosing the right walkout song has any effect on a fighter's performance? If you guys didn't know the old story, Rory McDonald used to walk out Somehow the UFC got the wrong number, phone number for Rory McDonald. The people who were in charge of that were texting some number, either his old, I forget whether it was his old number or it was the wrong number. They were texting that number and then the guy who was ever running that number, no one knows who it was, um, would text back being like, you know, like Rihanna, you know, we fell in love in a hopeless place or whatever the fucking name of the song is. And, you know, so you'd Rory be walking out to, like, these goofball songs. You'd be like, what the fuck is happening? And it turned out, like, this went on for, like, several fights that, you know, it was just some random donk who had the number that the UFC people were texting the wrong person to. And he was still going out there and just absolutely, mark this is what, you know, prime or pre-prime Rory. He was just marching people down. So, in that sense, probably not. The rule, whenever you talk to people who are around fighters, and what they tell you all the time is, if it makes them happy, like that's what you want to preserve, right? In the end, if you're outmatched, like I could have the right music. If I'm walking out to fight, you know, pick someone, Mega Man Ankaliyev, it doesn't matter what the fuck they're going to play for me. I'm going to get my ass kicked, right? That's, that's what's going to happen. But to the extent that the right music keeps them centered, keeps them balanced, keeps them focused, makes them happy, either in training or the, for this case, the walkout, all of those little things in, in totality yeah, they actually can because, if, dude, you got to remember something about these fighters, dude. They live and die in their minds, right? It is it is the source of their absolute strength or it is the anchor that will tear them to the bottom of the bottom. And so doing all the kinds of things that steal that, that reinforce strength, that build it, happiness, peace, or whatever, whatever they need for optimal performance, that music... Uh, can impact impact it. I would say more generally, it probably fight to fight doesn't mean a whole lot, but you will you will talk to folks that are like you know all those T's being crossed, all those I's being dotted. It does matter, you know. Can you explain the UFC matchmaking process and why some fighters go so long without a fight? Uh, what are the fighters given in terms of power and choice? My understanding is like when they sign, there's a date in the contract, and then for like whatever it is, like uh, I think it's I think it's actually 18 months the first contract. Um, from that, they're they're required to get three fights within that time frame, and so if you know Sean Shelby calls and it's like oh you know, offering you a fight and you accept, um, then that would obviously count as one within that time frame. Um, someone else was asking me, like, what happens if you accept and then the opponent declines? I actually uh, reached out to Amanda about this today. 
And what they were telling me was the UFC will do like like very, 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 very hard. Will like no matter what put you on that card and then try and find some replacement. So if you say yes to that opponent and they say no, what you've really said yes to is that date. Now you're asking like what are they what are the terms of power of in terms of choice, what do they have? They can say no to whatever they want. They're, they, in that sense, they are independent contractors. They, you cannot legally force someone to accept an opponent or a date. Now, you can put tons of pressure on them, right? There's all kinds of other ways you can, let's say, incentivize them to take it, but you cannot legally make them do it. You cannot legally make them take it. So um, there are obviously some provisions about contracts being extended when you say no, although there are some limits to that. But it basically just comes down to that. You Within a contract, there on the date you signed, there is then usually 18-month window or you can sign longer contracts, you know, for six fights or whatever, depending. Then you get three years or, you know, it, it, three fights for 18 months or whatever it is. Um, and then, yeah, it just goes like that. But you don't have to say. And so, you know, you can be on the shelf for a while because you can get injured and you can say yes. Then the person says no. And then, then you get injured and fall through or they want to move you to another card. There can be all kinds of reasons why it, it gets extended that way. But Usually the ones who can do this very often are the ones who don't make a big fuss about the opponent and can stay reasonably healthy. That's really the, the biggest thing. Um, let's see. Luke, which three philosophers throughout history do you think would have the most colorful or entertaining Twitter accounts? What? Based on the assumption that Twitter existed f from the beginning of written history and that the app has always had the culture it currently has. Jesus. He picks a few of them, including Schopenhauer. Dude, Schopenhauer was like the most fucking miserable. Really? Schopenhauer would be on your list? Um, I don't fucking know. I mean, who had colorful lives? Foucault? Uh, Foucault had a colorful life. Um, um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche is one you write. I'd probably add him to the list. Um, who are some other ones? Kept around. Um, I'm not sure. That's a really tough question. I mean, I'll say one thing. It's like, I'm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, the one thing that I really come back to, and this is the thing I've just been thinking a lot about recently. I, I had two majors in college. One was in political science and one was in philosophy. Again, not the first time you've heard this if you've been around for a while. But what has really stuck with me is that I I had to list... Um, like political science was the one that everyone told me would be beneficial because you could then turn that into like you can go to grad school or you know it just gives you some kind of baseline upon which to begin working in D.C. or whatever you wanted to do. And which is true. Certainly, it was certainly true at the time in which I graduated, which was 2002. But I will tell you that the vast majority of the academic thinking that I was introduced to through political science, and I, you know, you're like, oh, these crazy leftist professors. No, I, I got pretty mainstream stuff for the most part, man. I got pretty mainstream stuff. Uh, the vast majority of it turned out to be like not just wrong, but like factually bullshit it was true or at least there was good arguments to make for it at the time in which they made it you understand they had that you know they didn't have 20 years of subsequent information that would all show it to be wrong they made it based on what they have but it, it was not the point i'm trying to make is it was not enduring truth 
the funny part about the philosophy major of all the things, and I don't recommend people like, oh, I went to engineering school and now I'm going to switch to philosophy. I'm not saying that either. But I will tell you, I will tell you the funny fucking thing about it all is that it, I, got, I got more insults growing up or right after college and like, oh, you had a fly. We studied philosophy. Like, what, you know, I, I told you guys this, but I had my roommate, he's, he's now a radio, or my roommate in college, he's now a radiologist. He used to make fun of me. He used to say, oh, Luke, are you reading the book or is the book reading you? To sort of show like how bullshit philosophy was. And I will tell you that like 20 years on after college, and I guess I've already passed my 20-year mark on that, right? This, the, this past May. Um, the value and the wisdom that came from that has endured in every way much more than everything else I learned in political science. Significantly longer. And so I bring us all up to say, like, Twitter is about the moment. It's about self-promotion. It's really not a learning tool in that kind of way. You can find interesting things to then, like, read outside of it or videos or whatever but it's not by itself a learning tool i would not want my philosophers on twitter <laughs> like i want their works to be these enduring masterpieces i would want them to be over the long arc of time to be valuable i would want them to ha you know what i mean like twitter is the opposite of what i get from the study of philosophy it's like they're diametrically opposed so I, I get the spirit of your question is more like who was kind of quirky in that way, you know, and you can, you can, there's a lot of ones you can pick, but I will tell you that the real value of all those classical studies was that no matter what, I mean, I didn't learn them really until my twenties, but subsequent to that, no matter what I've been through, they've been the only things that have been, you know, for the large part, consistently interesting and consistently true. Everything else kind of fell apart. Uh, am I familiar with go-go music or is death metal only in the playlist? No, no, I've got some go-go music on here. What do I have on here? I don't have a whole lot of go-go music. Obviously, um, I've got Mambo Sauce on here. What else do I got? i got Trouble Funk. What else do I got? I've got, let's see. I've got uh, Critical Condition Band. I've got, um, what else do I got on here? Do you guys know what go go is? You probably don't. If you're not from this area, you wouldn't know what go go is. Uh, there's, there's a bunch more here that I got on tier too, but um, go go is a, a style of music uh, specific to DC, uh, and it's heavily percussion based. Obviously, it's an African American based art. Let's be very clear about that, um, both historically and now. Although what's kind of sad and true is that even young African-American audiences, my understanding is, I'm hardly the expert on go-go, but my understanding is even, and I've, I've seen it enough where like the older, like guys my age or even a little bit older who were, like when I was a kid, go-go was fucking huge here. And it's still pretty big, but uh, it's it's waned in popularity even even among young African-Americans, again, as I understand it. Uh, it's a heavily percussion based, but it was more about a sort of culture of uh, life and, and and by the way, there used to be like these crossover acts. Like um, there used to be like you know, so DC was famous for two kinds of music: uh, go go and then punk, right? Like Henry Rollins came from here, and and obviously Fugazi's from here, and there's all kinds of bands. Bad Brains is from here, and there used to be concerts that would be like you know, because all the white kids were going to like the and you don't want to overstate racially what it was it was you know because Bad Brains were you know was a black band, but. 
um, you know, you had all the white kids in the punk show and then you have all the black kids in the go-go shows. And so sometimes there'd be uh, punk and go-go shows together and it would bring the whole city together. You know, a lot of that whole, there's a documentary, I think it's on Netflix called Salad Days. You can see the whole history of mostly punk in the area, but they, there's a big chapter in that documentary about go-go. Um, you know, go-go's been, been, um, uh, Treated poorly by law enforcement. The shows have been shut down. Um, but it's really like... Uh, and there was a whole big thing about gentrification because there, there was a store on Florida Avenue that was blasting go-go from the inside. Granted, it was pretty loud, but like, you know, it's, it's it was a street corner. And people tried to shut it down and there was this wave of backlash to like them trying to shut it down because it felt like gentrification was trying to take over the city. Um, and... The guy won out. You can go by. And, I haven't been by in a long time, but last time I went by, whenever that was, I remember hearing it again. They had brought it back. But there aren't as many go-go shows as there used to be, and it definitely is. I, I hate to say it seems like it's a dying art form. But, you know, if you hang out on my front porch long enough and then the cars drive by, you will definitely hear people with the windows down. It's like a, it's How do I explain it? It's like party music, too. You know what I mean? Like for big crowds where the crowd is like doing a call and response with the audience. And again, it's heavy bass, heavy percussion. Um, you know, Chuck Brown is kind of considered, um, you know, the father of go-go in the city. He, he passed away. Chuck Brown uh, Park is not far from here. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend to be like an expert in it or, or anything like that. But I do listen to it time to time and... Uh, there are a couple of go-go songs you might want to check out. Um, let's see. They are covers. Real quickly, let's see. Who did them? Oh, you know what? Uh, Backyard Band. Backyard Band did a cover of uh, Hello, you know, the Adele song? It's fucking great. It's super, super, super good. I think they. I think Backyard Band... Or maybe it was like Junkyard, one of the two. One of them did a cover of uh, Ashley Simpson's Pieces of Me, which is not as good. But the Adele cover from Backyard Band, if you've never heard that, yo, it's on whatever streaming service you want. Go check that out. You can hear the percussion. And then they go through like the roll call of like all the places like Oxen Hill, How You Feel, all this kind of stuff. It's a very specific kind of music to hear. And uh, sad that it's kind of dying, it seems, but... Such is life, I suppose. All right. Luke, with the recent criticism against Izzy's style, as well as him coming out saying he doesn't want to be known as a fighter that coasts, what amount of aggression do you think champions should impose on challengers? See, this is a loaded question because the reality is this. <clears throat> All of your leverage... And the vast majority of the money you're going to make. Now, Izzy has been champion for a while, so we're all kind of getting used to it. But a lot of guys get titles and then one defense and then they're out. You know, look at Glover. Boom, in and out. Like Abe Simpson walking through the door and walking right back out, you know. That's where all the big money you make happens. The incentive at once you're becoming champion is largely to stay champion, whatever else the cost may be. So the, the question you're asking is not, to me, the right one. The question is, what does the champion want? Now, if the champion doesn't want to be known as a fighter that coasts, I got to tell you, at the end of the day, it's like, okay, fine. But how does that match up with your ultimate value of maintaining the status as the belt holder? 
because that's the only question that really matters. Everything else falls apart after that. How important is that, right? Once you realize how important that is, and then you realize in the case of Izzy, I think people sleep on this a little bit. Charles Oliveira might be one of the very best fighters I've ever seen, but he doesn't have a style of fighting where he can win reliably and not take damage. It doesn't work for what he does, right? Same with like Justin Gaethje, for example. Justin Gaethje can't do that. Most guys can't do that. Like, think of, Conor McGregor can't really. I mean, you know, he can one punch Jose Aldo or whatever. But in general, like the even the very best pound for pound guys can't do that. Izzy has gotten to a point where he's got a fight style where he doesn't really have to take damage, and he can win the belt. That is, to me, too intoxicating a marriage for a guy like that to overlook. Like, they can say what they want. Like, do I believe when Izzy says he wants to be exciting, he wants to be exciting? I'm sure he does. Like, I'm sure he does. Well, you think he wants to, like, get shit on by actors and media? Like, like that's a thing he craves? Like, of course not. That sounds silly, right? Not the point. The point is, what, what overrides that is, he has the capacity to maintain his dominant status that with all the wealth and value that that confers without having to engage in any kind of a firefight. Well, dude, if you can do that, how? why would you stop? Because you don't like taking those other things? Fine. I bet he doesn't. I bet he fucking hates Chris Pratt saying all that bullshit, you know? Even though Pratt later apologized. But I've said this before. Like, dude, once you get these real high IQ guys, fight high, like a high fight IQ, Mayweather's another one like that, where they realize I can beat this person and take a very minimal amount of damage and my status is conferred and maintained by doing that, it's hard to get him out of it, dude. It's very hard to get him out of it. That's a, that is a super rare, delicate, and difficult place to find yourself. But once you get there, it's like, wait a second, I can win this shit and barely get a scratch on my face consistently over time? Well, why the hell would I do anything else? It's, 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 a, it, there's not many fighters or boxers you could point to who can, who can really thread that needle in that way. He's one of them. And so it's, it's, again, it's, this is not me being like, oh, the fight against Cannoneer was amazing. Yeah, whatever, it's okay. Kind of a little bit on the dull side for sure. Uh, but the reason why it's dull is because you've got a guy who has made, who has reached peak status in terms of like contractually, he couldn't go. Like you're a champion. You can't really get any higher than that. You can have two belts, but you know you get the idea. And he barely—they can barely land a glove on him. Folks, I got to tell you, like if you're a prize fighter and you value your long-term health, and you realize you can, you can, I can maintain not just winning. I can maintain my position as the most important guy in this division without damage. You, you you have to take that from them. You're asking about what the champion has to do. Nothing. That's that is up. I, I said it on MK. He is the puzzle to be solved, not the other way around. Not the other way around. That doesn't mean you have to like him. That doesn't mean you have to think his fights are awesome. That doesn't mean you have to pay for his pay per views. I'm not telling you you have to do any of that. What I am telling you is you have to respect who's up here and who's down here and what he's able to accomplish up here. And what very unique position he occupies. He can be the most important dominant guy in that division without really getting hit.
I mean, folks, you can say whatever the fuck you want to him. You can call him whatever name. You can boycott whatever pay-per-view. That is about as sweet a spot as you're going to find as a prize fighter ever in your life. I, it's, you can't think of many guys who can do that. Very few. Very few. And then you might say, well, there's other guys who could do that. Maybe Robert Whitaker, for example, could do that but doesn't want to. Yeah, great, great. Maybe not everyone would be convinced by that. But Robert Whitaker is not the most important guy in that division. As good as he is, he is not. It's Izzy. So this is what I think it keeps coming back to. You watch enough fight sports, start thinking about who can win without taking a ton of damage. Habib could do it a little bit, right? It was a, it was a labor-intensive style, but he could do it, so he kind of got a little bit of that space. But it's not many guys. It's not many guys. <coughs> um, let see if there's anything else here real quick. Uh, I'll answer one more and then we'll go to the paid questions. What other careers did you consider before you got to your current profession? Thanks for all the great content. I briefly toyed with the idea of staying in academia. I briefly toyed with the idea of going into the State Department. I briefly toyed with the idea of going into politics, not running for office, but being one of the other folks involved in that process. Uh, as you guys know, I did work um, in D.C., uh, and, you know, we want to call it communications. I did speech writing. Um, yeah, I mean, I went down that path, but then I hated my life every time I went home that day. It was terrible, terrible, really, truly terrible people in that. Uh, and you'd be like, oh, it's my side, not the other side. It's all them motherfuckers. All of them, bro. They're all not your friend. Like, power is so corrupting. Any, any morsel of it. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't do, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it anymore. I, I, yeah, and so the, it, which, which naturally, by the way, raises the question, like, what am I built to do? I don't know. I have wondered that myself. I really don't know. Where would I fit in? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Truly, I, truly, I mean that. All right, let's see what you got here. Uh, Luke, if you haven't already, you should check out Nate Latshaw on Twitter. He's a data scientist that loves MMA, tweets out some great statistical analysis for upcoming fights, and has a website as well. It may assist in your analysis. Great call. I'll check him out. I appreciate that. Meaning behind your tattoos. Let's see. So this is the Eagle Globe and Anchor that I had a guy who specializes in Japanese tradition traditional tattoos kind of remix this is the dc flag and if you notice it looks a little bit like there's pieces missing it's designed to look like a rubber stamp that had been put on there and then i've never really talked about it this is the letter v um so there is this money that was done by some or money that was found by some archaeologists that was discovered in basically the time of in Colombia, but pre, it's basically pre-Columbian history in which this was used by previous civilizations. And that design, this design element, was found on it. So I had a guy in Cartagena turn this into the letter V using pre-Columbian imagery. Because um, I told him, he was like, what do you want? I was like, well, I want the letter V. And he was like, well, what do you want it to represent? I'm like, well, it's for my daughter. He's like, just the letter V. And I'm like, I want it to represent... Um, this moment, this moment here, here I'm in my wife's home country, my daughter gets to claim half of that, um, I'm here in, in this moment now. People always think tattoos have to have like this lasting meaning. Tattoos are a story of where you have been. 
Not like, dude, no, no truth in life is all that permanent. That doesn't really work that way, you know? Um, it, 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 yeah, of course. You don't want to have tattoos being like, oh, well, I love Jane, and you guys got bitterly divorced, and she stabbed you in the throat. Like, yeah, of course, you don't want that. But in general, man, like, tattoos are about your life, which can mean about mistakes, which can mean about different chapters, which can mean, and you know, this idea that they have, like, oh, it's permanently on you. Like, even then, that's not really true. You can get them lasered off. Like, it's just a story of where you've been. That was the story of the moment in which I got it. And so he didn't want to pick, like, the flag of Colombia. Like, I'm endorsing this nation. He got one that was pre-Columbian imagery and then put it here. And listen, some of you guys might fucking think this is stupid and hate it, and that's cool, man. Like, they're not for you. You know what I mean? Like, they're for me. I like them. Uh, I'm getting another one here in September. Shouts to District Tattoo. I'm going to be going to them in September. There's a guy out there who... Uh, who um, who I found, um, so I'm just gonna keep filling it up, and then on this side, I've not done anything, even though I'm left-handed. Actually, I'm gonna get one giant sleeve piece here. So this one I'm gonna kind of slowly fill up with like American traditional, and this side I'm gonna get all Japanese traditional. Thoughts on Buakal signing with BKFC? Yeah, um, <laughs> BKFC, dude they they make they make they make funny and interesting moves. I don't know what that will do for like the local market. I mean, I think that that one, I think that event's going to take place in Thailand. If I read that correctly, they're they're They surprise me. They surprise me. They're doing a lot of things that like, honestly, like Scott Coker used to do like interesting, weird signings like that. You know, Herschel Walker appears to be the world's dumbest and uh, least trustworthy man, but his signing for strike force at the time was shrewd. It was clever. You know, um, and obviously Herschel looked the part. Like that was interesting. Like those, like BKFC seems to be like the ones like who's got who got an eye for interesting things. Now, how much are they overpaying to do it? That probably is a big question. But um, clever, very clever. Why does the UFC attract so many sycophant fans? Commissioners in sports are hated in general, yet so many UFC fans come to White Knight for Dana on issues like fighter pay. I just don't get it. I think a lot of them. A lot of UFC fans are not sports fans, number one. You need to learn that. Like, they're not... There, There is, obviously, some. But there is a big difference between, like, your standard UFC fan and then your standard, you know, uh, pick something, uh, Dallas Mavericks fan. They're not the same kind of person. They often have a similar demo, but not the same kind of person. Uh, and the other part is, like, you fall in love with the institution, uh, not so much the people running it, Um Dana has kind of tied his identity to the institution. Like, the UFC is Dana. And so, therefore, there's just, like, this conference upon him of all of that. Plus, you know, like, he's sort of seen as the guy who, like, the other, like, oh, boring, button-up Adam Silver types. He's not that. He's given out, you know, quarter mil to fucking YouTubers. And he, he used to do these vlogs that he doesn't do anymore. Or there was one where he, they followed him uh, in the mosh pit. It's, it's funny. Everyone's like, Rage Against the Machine is very political now. Yeah. Thank you for joining the party fuckos but there was one where he uh, was in the mosh pit foraging against the machine and the camera followed him into the mosh pit so like he was doing stuff like that he's like the cool uncle exception in that way um but you know there's a lot of them like oh they're not like sports fans yeah because in large part they're not sports fans can you talk about Bo Nickel signing with UFC has he done it yet oh Dana White's contender series right so Bo Nickel, three-time national champion, one of the very best wrestlers out of Penn State, one of the very best wrestlers ever out of college. And um, 
he's a he's a beast. He can do it all. He can um, wrestle in in open space. He can wrestle on the mat. Strong, insanely good decision making. Athletic, quick. Uh, I need to see all the rest of his pieces develop. I mean, of his game. Like I don't know much about his striking. I saw his his fight with Icon FC in Richmond. But um, by the way, shouts to Richmond. What a great town that place is. But I don't know much about him. His MMA game, candidly, we n- none of us do. It's a question I can't really answer. What I can say is, you're not going to see very many champions in college ever come over to MMA with his background. The problem, though, is what's kind of interesting is, you know, I, I almost don't want to see these types. I mean, we'll have to see how it looks because, you know, Cejudo skipped college altogether, went right to the Olympics at age 18 or 19. And so he didn't even have any of this. But there is something to be said for the guys who came up a little bit short in their endeavors moving over to MMA. Now, you could say, well, Bo Nickel tried to make the Olympic team and that failed. And so this is that. But it's a little bit different. Like you want the Division One All-American, maybe even in one time a national champ. But something has to be longing for them to wanting to go into MMA. And this guy just fucking... I watched his senior year. He ran over people. They couldn't do shit to him. I'm not even sure how many points they scored on him. Like, it was... You know, remember Gable Steveson? His last year? It was like that. I mean, not quite that dominant, but it was pretty fucking close. Like, dude, they he was a man amongst boys out there. Um, I wonder how that will all translate to MMA. I mean, he's got all the athletic tools and all the wrestling tools, but I wonder... Alex says he's heading to Bogota and Cartagena next week, and he must try places to eat. Um, yeah, so if you go to Cartagena, I always recommend two different places. Juan del Mar is very, very good, uh, but the real one you want to go to is La Cevicheria. Yeah, that's the that's the home run hitter right there, La Cevicheria. Uh, there's plenty of good food everywhere in, in Cartagena, but um, those two, Juan del Mar and La Cevicheria. In Bogota, um, I think it's called, what's it called? Let me see. There's a bunch of places in Bogota that I don't know all that well. Um, There's one place in Bogota I can recommend. It doesn't have very good reviews on TripAdvisor, but my experience there was really good. Salvaje. Salvaje. Was 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 excellent for me. I've heard other places have like amazing gastro. Oh, Astrid y Gaston is another good one you can go to. It's Peruvian. That the the very best pisco sours I've ever had in my life. Um, so I, but my Bogota food knowledge is not that great because every time I go, I go with family and there's these large groups. We never really go to like you know you can't go to like super interesting places. Also, like for classic food, that's like like. My favorite Colombian dish is sobre barriga, and there's a place called, um, it's in English you would say Club Colombia, Club Colombia is how they pronounce it, but they have their own beer there, they have three different kinds of beer um, that they make, it's like the most famous beer in Colombia, I guess next to Aguila, but Aguila kind of sucks, um, so try that, try out Juan del Mar and La Cevicheria, or in, in, in Cartagena, or you can go to Salvaje. <laughs> Esto es para tu hija por el lado. So uh, this is for your little one uh, to get some ice cream. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Joe. Uh, thoughts on libertarianism? You know, listen, man. Uh, Cato Institute is in town. I, one of my favorite guys who's ever worked at Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez, is 
a beast. He does amazing work on privacy and uh, and, and particularly in the di- digital space. He's amazing. Um, he has a lecture on, if you guys ever want to know more about Robert Nozick's Anarchy State and Utopia, he has an amazing lecture on YouTube for free. You can just go watch it. I strongly recommend if you, if you want to understand probably the most important academic work underpinning libertarianism, or at least you know, certainly a very limited government, that would be the place to go. Uh, but it, it just sort of realistically, it's the party is filled with uh, weirdos, kooks, racists, and people who have a very totally untenable view of what government uh, should be. So, um, fuck them is my answer. Okay, how about this? The last 10 minutes before paid cues, can you just do rapid fire and answer as many as you can? Long form is nice, but I miss the old days with the shorties. Okay, after actually, actually at the end of this, I'll go back and do that. Scale of 1 to 10, how likely is BC to click local singles in your <laughs> area ad? No, dude. You know what? He's a good husband, man. He's loyal. Like, he's a good dude. Not that he's got a ton of options. Women aren't DMing him to beat down his door or some shit like that. But um, even then, dude, like, I, you know. He's not that guy. He's not that guy. Thoughts on uh, Combate Global as a promotion? They have fun fights, but you don't know who's fi- you don't know who's fighting until Wednesday or Thursday or fight week. I mean, here's the thing: and like Campbell McLaren's always talking about their ratings, and he's right. Dude, you look at their ratings; they're fucking great. They're a CBS product too. Like, I I I am amazed by how well they do. The problem, and this is the major thing that's an issue for them, they in terms of high-ranking guys that people care about or ladies, they do have some interesting prospects. That's true. But in terms of like you know what's what's relevant for the very best MMA, they don't put on relevant MMA in that sense. Again, they do have good prospects. There are some exceptions to that rule, but you know I wish them the best. Like I don't I don't think anything bad about them. Like they're they're killing it. But the biggest issue for them is they've got to get to that more relevant side, and that's been a real hurdle for them. Have you heard anything about what's next for Colby? I have not heard a fucking peep, dude. How are you going to claim you got brain trauma in a lawsuit and then take a fight? Like. Uh, being from AM, will Song test O'Malley's grappling? Being from AM? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, will he test O'Malley's grappling? Sure, he could. Mm-hmm. Did you try the Camp Scoville seasoning? Yes, I did. Bro, it's hot. And I have a pretty good tolerance. You know, I can try, I can, most hot sauces don't do shit to me, even really hot ones. And the tens of thousands of Scovilles don't really do a thing to me. Those are you got to be careful with them shits, bro. They are they're amazingly delicious. Camp Scoville, check them out. But um, not for people who are not like spice heads or whatever, whatever the proper term is. It's for people who are serious about their spice game. Do you have any suggestions for finding balance between healthy confidence and being able to accept criticism? To avoid crossing the line from confidence to arrogance or insecurity in that. Buddy, I struggle with this every single day. <laughs> I mean, every day I wake up and I'm like, am I a piece of shit or am I worthy of living? Uh, do I read above a fifth grade level or I don't, I, you know, I, this is, I struggle with this all the time. I would say that um, the best thing I can say is this, and this is... It's more for someone like in my role. The one lesson I've learned is people are always like, oh, why do you block this person or why do you block that person? You, you know, if you, if you can take the criticism, you should just be able to listen to it and, you know, oh, you don't want to hear the criticism. And it, it, it really doesn't understand the, the truth of the matter. 
The reality is not that you should be afraid of criticism, but there is an argument to how much bandwidth that should take up. Right? If you just block all of it, yeah, that's a problem. And if you but to me I see that as a similar problem of just accepting all of it into your mind. There is a question about how much volume of criticism is actually beneficial. And the reality is, of course, some, and where does that line get drawn? I don't know. But I think people really misunderstand. It's really not about, st- I, can't, I can't stop the criticism. Like, even if I block them, we're going to make it somewhere else and then someone's going to send it to me. Like, it finds its way to my doorstep. The question is, how do I get high quality criticism, right? The question is not which of the stores that, that I could go buy something from. Where is the high quality store? That's where I want to go. What you want is high quality criticism because of course you are imperfect and of course you are going to say things wrong and you're going to have stupid beliefs and you know, you're going to look at a situation incorrectly. That what you have to figure out for yourself, and this is something I struggle with daily, I don't want to block it all, all of it. It would do you no good. But where can I filter out the ones that I don't need? Where do I get the ones that I actually need? Where's the high quality criticism that I can really, really use? That's that's what you're looking for. Is it a friend? Is it a confidant? Is it a priest? I don't know. I don't know what your life is like. I don't I don't understand. But once you're able to understand what high quality criticism looks like, and actually once you get high quality criticism, if you are open to it, dude, it's liberating. Because then you have a much clearer sense about what's gone wrong, about what you could do better, about what the real way it should impact you is, like how heavy it should be, how heavy, how light perhaps, um, how fixable, how not. It's just so much more. Dude, like good criticism, even if it's harsh, good criticism is, it, it's illuminating. It's illuminating. That's what you want. That's what you're looking for. What you need is high quality criticism, which is really just feedback in another way of putting it. But uh, So your question is, Finding a balance between healthy confidence and being able to accept criticism. First, start with the second part of that equation. Where do I get high-quality criticism? How can I get some of that? And then use that as fuel and direction and, um, um, well, yes, fuel and direction to make better choices about how to fix whatever problem you have. And it's on the other side of that solution that you will be, I told you guys before, you cannot just tell yourself, you know, I'm good, I'm great. Yes, you have to do that as part of the process. But if you're lying to yourself, even you won't believe it, right? It comes from the act of getting better. It comes from the act of proving to yourself you can and then constantly reinforcing it, constantly reinforcing it. I'm not telling you to beat yourself up either. So this is what I mean. Get that real, valuable, high-quality criticism and use that to make all kinds of better informed choices and solutions that you might need for whatever problems that you might be facing. I don't have it figured out, folks. Far from it. But to the extent I've ever had any success dealing with this, it has almost always come from the fact that I had somebody I could talk to or someplace I could get really good, insightful criticism and then use that as a way to make better decisions. What do you think of Luke Rockhold's remark that he's the only one who can beat Izzy? Well, the old Luke Rockhold, I believe that. The old Luke Rockhold, I believe he could beat Izzy. Yes, uh, 100%. I don't know what to make of this one. 
we'll have to see. Would you consider having special guests on the chat like Dr. Mike Isratel regarding sport-specific hypertrophy or a conversation with Coach Barry Robinson regarding high-level striking development? Yeah, I want to change the live chat. I've not really talked to you guys about it, but there's some things that I want to do, and that's at top of the list, where I would like still put up a thread for questions. You guys would fill them up, but I would just have somebody interesting come on and do an interview that way. The only problem is it's like asking like an hour of somebody's time is kind of hard to do, so... There's a, there's some inherent limits to it, but yes, that is absolutely a, a goal. Luke, what's the easy issue? His fights are masterful technical wizardry, but not what he sells them to be. And he gets very defensive when paying fans who buy tickets to pay-per-views called out. Yes, here's the thing. I've already described what the issue is. I will talk about this. He is very, he appears to be quite sensitive. Yeah. Um, I haven't talked to him in a long time. So who knows? Any criticism of mine that I've made could have impacted how his judgment of me. I, you know, I have been. I think um, I have been. I have been a greater advocate of what he's done probably than I think anyone else in MMA media. Maybe Ariel will be up there too. But you know, in general, I I consider what I've done to be extremely, um, you know, kind and and uh, you can fill in whatever adjective you want from there. Yeah, it's that second part that I don't really like from what I've seen. Now listen, it cannot be easy to go out there and do your best and everyone's like, yo, fuck this guy. People are walking out and then you got famous people being like, this guy's pitter-patter. I mean, it can't be easy. It can't be easy. Uh, and he has a right to say whatever he wants to. Like, oh, well, the fans get to talk shit. Can I talk shit? Yes. But one of the things you realize, and I've only got a minor, 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 minor taste of the kind of public life that he leads, and I do mean quite minor, is that the reality is, man, you just have to be bigger than that. You just have to be bigger. Dude, the fans, if they paid for your money and or they paid for your event and they, they feel like they got not a lot out of it, what do you think? You're going to browbeat them into not saying those things? Like, they're going to say what they're going to... Like, for example, like, oh, like someone's like, there's a, there's a compilation video of you acting like a dumbass at beer house dude like what am i gonna say like the internet's gonna do what the internet's gonna do people are going to once you act into the world you don't own your actions the everyone else does and they get to tell you what they think of it um that's just reality you know that that's just how it goes and of course it's very very easy for me to say that i'm not living the world that he's living and i don't understand fame in the way that he has to live it i, I, I this is all quite true but you know, like Izzy is not nearly as famous as Ronaldo or Messi. Like, and you should see like what the Spanish press said about them. Even, well, you know, even when they were criti uh, praising them, like, dude, they're merciless. Or English press, what they say about like their soccer players, fucking merciless. I mean, they absolutely destroy them. How many times have I watched Arsenal fan TV and they're singing "You're not fit to wear the shirt" to their own fucking team? Dude, they're brutal. They're brutal. They're gonna do that. That is what they're going to do. That is the role they're going to play. You, you, you have to be able to realize that you can't control that. You can't beat it out of them. You can't insult your way out of it. You can't do any of those things. There's nothing you can say to make them change their mind by arguing with them or by insulting them. It won't work. It won't work. And of course, you know, I have to heed my own advice. How many times have I, you know, shat on someone's idea and been a rude piece of shit about it? Like, you know, I, I'm hardly above... Um, and again, in a much more insignificant way, my, you know, understanding my own criticism a little bit better about my own my own self. But 
But it just is the truth, man. It just is the truth. Like when I used to run Bloody Elbow and MMA fighting, people would go after you. In the, again, this is a very minor version, but people would go after you in the comments. You just have to learn to let them have their say. Now, of course, they're doing like, you know, N-word this or whatever. You have to get rid of them. But they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to say what they're going to say. It's that experience was theirs. That experience, their experience was not yours. They own that. You do not own that. They're going to say what they're going to say about their experience. That's why it's like, if you didn't, I keep saying, if you didn't like his fight, you didn't like his fight, man. You didn't like it, you know? Uh, I think some of the criticisms, criticisms are a little bit harsh, but okay, I get it. Um, he is, it does appear sensitive. I will also add, though, one other piece. If I'm him, I'm also asking some questions, too. People have been shitting on him since the moment he got to the UFC and then casting doubt on him and casting doubt on him. It probably is a little bit exhausting to have to keep fucking dealing with it. You know? Again, doesn't doesn't mean you can go and insult the whole world, but I, I, I get it a little bit. A little bit. I, I, I understand his reaction, I think, to some extent. Um, but you, you really have to... Dude, whatever experience that fan had... Flying into Vegas, paying for those tickets, paying for the hotel, and dude, that's not cheap. Food in Vegas is crazy expensive, especially on the strip. Blah blah blah, dude. Like it's a lot, man. And if they don't get what they want, that it was their experience that you helped define. You can't whatever else you want to say, you can't change that. You have to be accepting of it. All right. Let's see if there's any other ones that were paid. Certainly, if not, it's no big deal. Um, where does the Nate Diaz contract situation end? They're eventually going to be required to give him a fight. I think they're going to give him somebody that is a terrible matchup for him. I expect he's going to lose, and then he'll rebound with a Jake Paul fight. I really think that's how it all comes to a close. I don't, I don't think there's anything more to it than that. We all can see the end coming for the way it's going to come. What are some of the good MMA gyms in the area? I love urban boxing where Mike Easton coaches. Uh, Beta Academy, I used to train Beta Academy for a long time. Pentagon MMA is good. District Martial Arts is good. There's a ton of Yamasaki Academies around here. Uh, Level Up Striking is another good one. By the way, the Baltimore area has all kinds of good gyms, ground control and everything else. Um, there's gyms in Frederick. There's gyms in Rockville. There's gyms in, uh, there's 50-50 with Ryan Hall and Falls Church. Uh, I mean, dude, there's a lot. You can, dude, you get good training around here. And then if you really are serious about boxing, like, you want to, like, box, you can go to Headbangers, but um, they'll fuck you up. <laughs> shouts to shouts to uh, all the fellas there. They're not bad people. They're great people, actually. But that's not... You better go in there with you're fucking ready to go. You better go in there ready to go. Barry Robinson ain't playing with y'all. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah. Wait, what did I say? Barry Robinson? Hang on. My mind is not working right. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Barry Hunter, excuse me. Barry Hunter. Barry Hunter isn't playing with y'all. Sorry about that. Have you seen thoughts on the Uvalde footage? Yeah. Now, some of it was unfair. It turns out that the guy looking at the Punisher phone, his wife was one of the teachers in there, and then the guy with the hand sanitizer was told he was going to be working triage, so he wanted to clean his hands. But, I mean, it's like, dude, I'm not one of these guys that has been convinced by the defund the police argument. I'm not. I find it uh, interesting, but unpersuasive. But then when you see some shit like that, you're like... And then the Supreme Court has 
rule that they don't have an obligation to protect you and that you there's all kinds of qualified immunity now where they cannot be sued for any kinds of misdeeds you begin to wonder exactly like okay i don't know if defunding is the answer but clearly a rethinking about the role of policing in society might prove beneficial how much of Fazeev's game is reliant on his admitted next level athleticism a fair bit a fair bit he's a great i mean dude like he's not yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, like he has athletic gifts and he uses them. But he uses them intelligently. Uh, MMA Fighting is noting the absence of Dana at International Fight Week. Any thoughts as to why? Again, we heard a bunch of rumors, but they're just rumors. I don't, I don't understand what else it would be, candidly. So, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can, I can baselessly speculate if you like, but I'd prefer not to. All right, very quickly, let's go to the questions. I said I would do rapid fire. I will do rapid fire very quickly. All right, let's pick up where I left off. If you and Brian got into a physical fight, what technique would you use to send him to hell? Throat punch. Thoughts on UFC fighters who talk shit about Joe Biden? Uh, I don't really care about the political views of fighters. I have learned that lesson for the most part. Um, I don't like Joe Biden either. I don't know if I share their worldviews necessarily, but, I, you know, their views one way or the other on that are unpersuasive to me. Should I even bother getting a COVID shot at this point? You know what you should do? You should talk to your doctor and see if it's right for you. It may be. It may not be. Who else? Uh, you've just interviewed Jake Paul, and I couldn't help but notice the views are relatively low. 14K after about 20 hours. Yeah. Do you think his appeal as a boxer has already waned a little bit? Yes. Or the lack of interest is specific to your audience, mostly focused on elite MMA? Both. And also, he had already done a long interview with Ariel, and he had done a press tour. This was after that, and it wasn't even in person. It was just over digital. You know, and I don't have a strong, I, I, I don't mind talking to him, but I don't have a strong interest in it necessarily. I thought the views were pretty commensurate with the value, to be honest with you. Do you think the UFC is sincerely offering Nate Diaz the most money ever to be paid a UFC fighter outside of McGregor? No, I don't. Um, in a fantasy world where you and BC were slated to fight one another in an MMA match, what handicaps would have to be imposed on you for a fair matchup? Jesus. Um, couldn't use grappling. Something like that. And he could. Like, there's there's just no way he could compete with me on the ground. Not possible. Um, Izzy has admitted playing it safe during his title defenses. Well, he's admitted having off days. I don't know if he said that exactly. And struggled to find the same offensive groove he uh, excited us with during his rise to title. To what extent do you think the footage of Izzy has played in his offense being somewhat stymied? Yes, I think the fact that there is a shit ton of tape and the division has clearly shorn up their defenses, uh, there's, it's incontestably true. The problem is they don't have an offensive component to go with that. That's the issue. Is BC the Hunter Biden <laughs> of MK? Um, no, you know what? He's not out there having orgies and shit. Uh, let's see. Top five Pantera songs, not albums, just songs. Let's see. A bunch of them are going to be from that album. Uh, let's see. Walk, Respect. Uh, I'm, okay, off that album. Walk, Respect, Mouth for War. Um, fucking Hostile. 
um, this love. Uh, but you could go. Um, I mean, I could. I mean, five minutes alone. You know, I mean, I did, it goes on and on and on. Like, drag the waters, uh, sandblasted skin. I mean, and, you know, we're talking. By the way, I saw you. Did you guys see this? Rex, the bassist, and Phil Anselmo are going to get together and do a tour as Pantera. Don't know who's going to play drums or guitar, obviously, but that's big. Um, worst hangover you ever had? It was in Miami. I was there for a wedding for my wife's friends from Colombia. And I didn't, the first time I ever had a, uh, a Guadadiente, which is like this like licorice drink, it's clear, that is super strong, and I drank it kind of like wine, and then I got into a hot tub that night, and I was super dehydrated, I couldn't move, I couldn't move the next day, I was, I was in such pain, probably should have gone to the hospital, whatever. Um, da -da 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 -da. Was the Jake Paul interview punishment for beers? <laughs> no, no. It was not. I mean, folks are like, why are you interviewing him? Listen, trying to be a good soldier at Showtime, right? You know, 42. I got to worry about more than just myself. I got to worry about my family now. So there we go. All right, there's a hater question. I'll end on the hater question. Are you ignorant <laughs> or too big an Izzy fanboy for not knowing why Izzy isn't a superstar and has low pay-per-view sales? He doesn't have low pay-per-view buys, by the way. It's not sells. Even a blind person understands it's because he's the most boring fighter not named Bilal Muhammad. Okay, that's a judgment call, not a fact. He is a good-looking man, minus his nails. Okay, so here we go. He has the best management team in UFC and has been promoted madly by UFC. That's true. Uh, and by his management. Okay, putting him on International Fight Week, stacking undercards to the teeth, blah, blah, blah. And yet his pay-per-view numbers don't go above 600K. I have been told that there's not a pay-per-view this year by any headliner that's gone over 400. How about that? How about that? UFC might not have an active headliner right now that goes above 400K. Uh, it's so simple. He does not deliver inside the cage, and he is boring AF. Again, these are all judgment calls. You don't need to call BC and I racist. <laughs> and better open your sleepy eyes wider. Okay, I'll let you have the last word on that. I've sort of been over the Izzy topic enough. But just so it's clear, who's outselling Izzy actively right now? Nobody. Nobody. All right. With that in mind, we shall call it a day. Thank you so much for watching. This will go on podcast. Um, as always, if you want to reach me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com, and I will be back next week. Oh, and by the way, I am going to bring a technical difficulties back. I have to get my all my stuff out of my office that I'm not really using because it's been a disaster. We're going to set it up downstairs now, so I'm going to have space down there. So what is next? I don't care what other fight happens first. Not going to move forward until we do a technical difficulties on Volk and Max. We'll do that first, and then we're going to lean back into it. Because I told you guys in Vegas, so many people were like, you got to get back to it, you got to get back to it, you got to get back to it. I will. I will. I was moved by that, quite frankly. And I feel like that's the only real content that I think I can deliver to kind of stand out a little bit anyway. So that's what we'll do. Thank you guys so much for watching. You're the best. Have a great weekend. Take care of yourself. And until next time, stay frosty.